Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. In 1962, director Robert Mulligan and star Gregory Peck delivered a Hollywood classic that tells the story of racism in the South through the lens of a child. In 2019, William Grant and Sons produces an absolute classic of an Irish whiskey. The film is To Kill a Mockingbird. The whiskey is Tullamore Dew. And we'll review them both. This is The Film and Whiskey Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Brad G. I'm Bob Book. And this week we're looking at the 1962 classic film, To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, we are. Brad, had you seen To Kill a Mockingbird before we sat down to watch it together last night? You know, we've gone through two movies that I had seen. Uh Uh-huh. Iron Man. Well, I guess I hadn't seen Green Book, but it was still brand new. Sure. So I don't really count that. I haven't seen this movie. You've not seen... Okay. No. So To Kill a Mockingbird is one of those movies that I feel like it kind of falls in the same camp as 12 Angry Men. Right. Where like a lot of people see it in middle school, high school, uh, but they don't watch it as adults. You know what I mean? But they still have that background with it. Yeah. So I'm interested to hear... I had read the book. So you read the book like high school... Ninth grade probably. Ninth grade. All right, cool. So yeah, this is an absolute classic of American cinema. It came out in 1962, starring Gregory Peck and a bunch of kids. <laughs> I mean, really, there's no big names in the movie besides Gregory Peck. I really just want the cast list to say <laughs> Gregory, Gregory Peck, Peck, Atticus Finch. A bunch of kids. A bunch of children. <laughs> and then what they played, a bunch of children. Right, exactly. <laughs> this movie won three Oscars. It won uh, Best Actor for Gregory Peck, mm-hmm. one of the great screen performances of all time, universally beloved. It won for Adapted Screenplay, and it won for Best Art Direction. And it was nominated for five more. Best Picture, Best Director, Supporting Actress, Best Cinematography, and Best Score for Elmer Bernstein. Who was Supporting Actress? Supporting Actress was actually for Mary Badham, who played Scout she was nominated really? for an Oscar for this movie. Yeah. I was wondering, I was like, there aren't really many females in the movie. There really but- aren't. Scout is the main character of yeah. the movie. I would say. I mean, it's told from her perspective. She's, yeah. you know, older Scout narrates this film. Right. You know, before we get too far into the technical stuff, why don't we press pause? I'm sure most of our listeners understand what Kill a Mockingbird is about, right. either from the book or the movie. But it's time for my favorite segment of the podcast. Brad explains to Kill a Mockingbird. I think it should be Brad clumsily explains. <laughs> Brad expertly explains. Expertly explains. To Kill a Mockingbird. Because Bob and I are experts. We have been watching movies our entire lives. Brad, so, what would you say this film is about? To Kill a Mockingbird is about the Deep South. Uh, it's set in Alabama. It is set in Alabama. It, they don't specify it in the film. Uh, Maycomb. Maycomb is the made-up town in Alabama. Okay. Where, yeah. So they're, they're in the South. Uh, in the 1930s, I want to say early 30s, like 30, 31, right after the Great Depression. 
And the story is about a young child named Scout. Uh, I don't remember what her actual name is, but they call her Scout. Jean Louise Finch. Jean Louise Finch, who goes by Scout for some reason. And her older brother, Jem, and uh, one of their childhood friends. And the entire story is, it's almost a two-lane story. One lane is about one of their neighbors, who is a recluse named Boo Radley. There's all sorts of horror stories, almost like ghost stories that the kids tell each other. and They taunt each other to run up and touch the front front door of the house and run away and, and things like that. So part of the story is about them discovering who Boo Radley is. But then the other part of the story is about their father, Atticus Finch, who, first off, that's a phenomenal name. Just a great name. Who is played by Gregory Peck. He is a uh, genteel lawyer, mm-hmm. and he is in char- He is put in charge of defending a black man who has been accused of raping and beating a young white woman in the community. Yep. And so the story explores those two avenues uh, through the lens of Scout, who's about 9, 10, 11 years old. Yeah. And I mean, it's really about the, uh, you know, the loss of innocence of these kids and how at the start of the movie, you know, they have these fantastic ideas of what the recluse Boo Radley is like. By the end of the movie, it's them understanding what humanity is really like. Both the good, you know, Boo Radley is a real human being and the bad of seeing how their town manifests its racist hatred towards this character, Tom Robinson. Uh, So, Brad, as we went into this movie, you said that you had read the book. So what sort of expectations did you have for the movie? Did you think it was going to be as good as the book? Did you think they were going to leave certain things out? What was your initial impression? One of the struggles that I had is, uh, as with most people who read books in high school, you don't take them all super seriously. Mm. So I remember enjoying... To Kill a Mockingbird as a ninth grader, but I don't remember it making a huge impact on me. Sure. And so my struggle going in the movie was I knew two things. I knew, number one, that the book was just okay for me in high school. But then I also knew that this was like a classic film with a capital C. Right. You know what I mean? Like, there's certain levels of classic films out there. This is pretty highly regarded as one of the greatest. Yeah. Am I am I wrong in saying that? No, not at all. So going into it, I was a little worried. I was kind of like, well, I don't, I don't know what this is actually going to be like. I don't know if I'm actually going to care for it or not. And I came away from it having really enjoyed the movie. I think that it represented the book extremely well from what I remember of the book, that it didn't leave anything out. I, I think that it struggled with certain amounts of translation that you face with any book to movie adaptation. Right. Where in the end, book the reason books are so powerful is because you are able to explore the inner mind of the characters. Right. You know, you're able to hear their thoughts through writing. Whereas you can kind of do that in movie if you have a narrator, you know, narrating their thoughts over what's happening. But that that's not... Sure. That's not common in movies. And so in this, it, I think the main place it suffered was... There are certain times where I think certain things don't translate as well because you, you're not able to hear what Scout is thinking or Atticus, Atticus Finch or mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah, definitely. So this movie is based off of a book by Harper Lee who based this off of her own childhood. Now, obviously, she didn't go through the exact same circumstances that her characters do, but she did grow up in Alabama. So in the book, the character of Scout is based on herself. And her friend in the book, Dill, is actually based on the author Truman Capote, 
who she kind of grew up being friends with. Huh. Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. This was the only major book that Harper Lee ever wrote in her life uh, near the end of her death. Uh, an initial rough draft of this book was released uh, under the title Go Set a Watchman. And you got the idea that apparently the initial draft of this book featured Scout as an adult. And uh, she was going back to her town uh, to talk to Atticus, who at that point was an old man and he had become an old racist. Yeah. So it's like super controversial book, huh. not just because they ruin Atticus Finch, but because there was a reason that this initial pitch of the book was rejected. And the publisher said, no, no, no. Focus on the story of when Scout was younger. Right. Uh, but also Harper Lee was like 90 something years old at this point and she was in declining uh, health and they kind of convinced her to release this book, but they think that they may have done it like in a shady way. Released which book? To go set a watchman. That uh, book just came out like what, three years ago, three or oh, four years really? ago, maybe she just died. The book came out right after she died. Huh. Um, but they think that they kind of were shady in how they convinced her. They being the publishers, the publishers oh, or her publicist or whoever yeah, it was yeah, yeah, to yeah. release this book. But this was the only major book that she released in her lifetime while she was still in good health. Yeah. It won the Pulitzer. It has become a classic of American literature. Yeah. And it was adapted for the screen in 1962, and it was given to this director, Robert Mulligan. And I don't really know much about Robert Mulligan. Like, I watch a lot of movies. That is not a name that I recognize. Uh, He came out of TV. This was only like his fifth or sixth movie. I would say this, honestly, kind of like 12 Angry Men yeah. felt a little bit like a TV movie. It sh- it really did. This actually kind of feels, that actually makes sense to me. It feels like a TV movie in a good way. And yet for some reason, and I don't mean to like, you know, pile on Robert Mulligan, watching Sidney Lumet's direction in 12 Angry Men, you knew that that guy was going places. I don't really like a lot of the decisions that Robert Mulligan made in this movie. They did make a similar decision to do a very fast zoom in on an old man's face at one point. Yeah, the zooms in this movie really... And and the way that they would do zooms in camera at the time, the footage gets grainier the more you zoom in. Right. And so like when they go to restore this movie now, 50 years later, every time they zoom in, you can tell when they've zoomed in because the footage still looks terrible 50 years later. Some of the artistic directorial decisions that this guy Robert Mulligan makes really just do not hold up for me. I don't think that he's a Sidney Lumet, that's for sure. Yeah. I don't know. What were your thoughts on the way the film was put together, like the direction of the movie? I think that my struggle is it felt like there was two separate movies. There was the courtroom movie. Yeah. And there was Scout's movie. And they were very different. They were compelling for different reasons. They were telling different stories. And that was my biggest struggle with the movie is that the courtroom sequence is a 10 out of 10. Yeah. I, I will very confidently say that is some of the best filmmaking I've ever seen. Sure. I, I, just over the top, wonderful. It packs an emotional punch. It it has logical consistency. The, the filmography was great. The acting is superb. The rest of the movie... Felt like it kind of dragged along a little bit. It wasn't too long. The The whole movie was about two hours and ten minutes. Yeah. The courtroom sequence is like 45. If that, yeah. If that, yeah. 25 or 30. Yeah. And so the rest of the movie doesn't drag too long, but it kind of feels a little slower, and I don't always know where they're going. I don't know why Boo Radley's in the movie sometimes. Yeah, here's the thing. I mean, we've both read the book. Yeah. I don't know that this script is the best possible adaptation of that book. Yeah. Because in the book, you really understand some of the motifs 
and the parallels and the metaphors that Harper Lee is drawing. Because Boo Radley is supposed to be a parallel for Tom Robinson. Exactly. Like but you don't catch that in the movie. You get this idea of, you know, killing a mockingbird. You know, somebody that, I think in the movie they say, they don't do anything but make music for us to enjoy. It's, it's the idea of these innocents that society corrupts or that society discards. And they do it with Tom Robinson, who's an innocent man. And they do it with Boo Radley, who's misunderstood. But in the movie... It's really kind of forced in there. I feel like everything with the kids seems so lighthearted and carefree. And in the book, you do get this transition to the courtroom and you understand it to be this moment where Jem and Scout, the kids, really kind of grow up a little bit and see the world how it is. But in the movie, it doesn't seem so much as a major turning point for them as it is just like, like you said, it's a jarring shift to a completely different tone, a completely different movie and then right after that's over, you go back into the story of the kids with Boo Radley. And it doesn't work for me. Yeah, what whatsoever. And the problem is, I actually really enjoy the childlike innocence of the entire two-thirds of the movie that's focused on the kids. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy that. That like One of my favorite lines from the movie is when Jem, her older brother, is walking back to the house like an Egyptian. And she goes, Jem, what you doing up there? He goes, I'm walking like an Egyptian. Yeah. Should I redo this without that? No, do it, man. <laughs> you know, here's the thing, though. I want to I want to comment on this because we're about to get into our favorite performances in the movie. Yeah. I hate the fact that no one in this movie sounds like they're from Alabama. Yeah. Like, they're all doing a different stereotype of what they think Southern people should sound like. Yeah. And none of them sound like an Alabama accent. Yeah. Like, Gregory Peck isn't even hardly doing an accent. At all. At all. And I, he is so obviously not doing it that I wondered if that was like a choice to make him better than everyone around him. Oh, like the fact that he doesn't have an accent right. indicates that he's like that smarter. He, and That he left Alabama, received an education. Yeah. To me, that was like a... Interesting. A, I didn't even choice. pick up on that. Yeah. But they're kind of like making him seem more classy by... Exactly. And that's something that Southern people really feel. Oh, yeah. You know, is that they have to pretend to be something they're not in order to be perceived as intelligent or smart people. Right. Because of the way they, that, because of their dialect. Exactly. English. Yeah. If you shouldn't be defending him, then why are you doing it? For a number of reasons. The main one is that if I didn't, I couldn't hold my head up in town. I couldn't even tell you or Jim not to do something again. You're going to hear some ugly talk about this in school. But I want you to promise me one thing. That you won't get into fights over it. No matter what they say to you. Yes, So what did we think about, aside from the accents, the performances in the movie? I feel like we have to start with Gregory Peck as Atticus Finch. Who? I, I, didn't, I didn't notice him in the movie. Yeah, he was a very minor character. <laughs> yeah, so Gregory Peck, he just took this character and ran with it. Yeah. In such a way that he gives this genuine performance of love for his children of love for Tom Robinson, of true belief in what's right and wrong. Yeah. 
that he he has this higher sense of justice and rightness that the the common folk of Maycomb, Alabama don't have. Yeah. And he's trying to pass it on to his children. He continually tells Scout, like, Scout, you don't need to fight. Like, fighting is not the answer. I'm going to give a, a hot take. A hot film and whiskey take. hot take. I've seen this movie probably ten times. It has always been among my favorites. And something about it this time, I haven't seen it in probably five years. It just didn't click with me the way it used to. Ooh. And part of it is the pacing of the movie. Part of it is the way that they stick so doggedly to having it being told from the kid's point of view. Yeah. Atticus is just not developed as a character. Yeah. And part of that is is his role in the movie. He, he has to be the... The pinnacle and the paragon of goodness right. in this world. Yeah, he's that plato- platonic ideal. Ideal, yeah. But at the same time, you don't learn much about him. And right. even in the moments where he feels defeated, like when you find out, spoiler alert, that Tom Robinson is dead, he kind of just walks around and goes, oh my gosh, for a second. And then he says, well, Tom Robinson's dead. You don't get an insight into who he is at his core. You don't see his struggle because he's just perfect all the time. I disagree. How so? Because for me, I think it says something very deep about a human being when his first response when he found out that Tom died, maybe not his very first initial, but the first thing he like goes and does after that is he says, I must go tell Helen what sure, happened. Sure, sure. And so for me, the fact that he his immediate thought is, how can I take care of others? Yeah. I think that continues to tell something about him. And granted, like you said, he's the paragon. Right. He is the ideal good person in this movie that you're striving towards. So is it surprising that when he's faced with bad news, the first response is to do something good? You know? Yeah, and I don't I don't see that as a character flaw. I just think that he's, he's always perfect all yeah. the time. I think for me, one of the most uh, emotionally attaching parts that I had with him was when he was sitting on the front porch and he could hear his children talking about their mother, mm. his wife who had passed away. They don't really explain why she or how she passed away. That was one of the moments where I felt connected with Atticus. Yeah, for sure. Where, where you see him struggling through, like, my children don't have a mother and I'm trying to be something for them, you know, to be a good father for them. Yeah. And in that moment, I felt very connected to him. You know what else made me struggle to connect with Atticus? Why did they call him Atticus? Yeah. His his own children. I don't remember if they explained it in the book, but in the movie, they ask Scout, why do you call your dad Atticus? And he says, or she says, because Jem does. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. And I do understand that that means, like, the implication is that him and Jem are kind of strained in their relationship a little bit. But they never stop calling him Atticus. He never corrects them. It just is what it is. Well, and they could have corrected that with the simple change of at the end of the movie when he's going to see Helen and yeah, yeah. Tom Robinson's wife and give her the terrible news. And Jem runs out and he says, Atticus, Atticus yeah. do you need me to come with you? And Atticus says, no, son, I don't yeah. need you to come with me. I don't know what his accent is. It's not Southern. All they could have. And then he says, Atticus, I'm coming with you. Yeah. All they would have had to say was dad. Dad. Yeah. And that would have been Again, super powerful. These are like simple directorial choices and writing choices that could have been made that I just don't think are. And yeah. they're not made like they skim over so much character development. My favorite sequence in the movie, as is yours, is the courtroom sequence. Yeah. And in the book, 
Uh, Jem and Scout are able to get a seat in the courtroom because they sit with the reverend of the African-American congregation who knows Tom Robinson and he knows Calpurnia, their maid. That's not even established in the movie. They just walk up to him and they're like, oh, reverend so-and-so, can we sit with you? And he goes, well, sure. And he gets my favorite line in the whole movie, Mm -hmm. which is when he's all of the African-Americans in the balcony stand up and he tells Scout, you know, he says, Miss Jean Louise, stand up, your father's passing. And that moment used to pack so much of a punch for me. And I watched it this time and it didn't have that same effect on me because they did not develop that character. He is only in that little bit of the movie. The whole court case takes place in the in the span of a day. And he has that line and then he's gone from the movie. Yeah. It, it lacks the emotional punch that it needs to have from having that character there. And I feel like it when we talk about decisions like this in a movie... It's not like it would have taken an extra 20 minutes of movie time to develop that character. Right. All it would take is a simple one to two minute scene early in the movie where they establish that Atticus Finch has a relationship with the Reverend. They're friendly with one another. They care for one another. Yep. And the kids know him. Yeah. That's all it would take. Exactly. A quick one to two minute scene. And they don't have that in there and you lose that impact that you could have later in the movie. And part of me wonders if that's part of what's lost from the page to the screen. Right. And, and when I say page, I mean the novel. You know, the novel is told from the perspective of the kids, as is the movie. But I think the movie leans a little too hard into having it be told from the kids' perspective. Like even the score. And I love the music in this movie. Elmer Bernstein. Like it's this beautiful. score, it's one of the most famous movie scores of all time. But when the music gets scary, it's at moments when the kids feel scared. It's like when they're sneaking around the Radley house at night. Right. It's when they get attacked at the end of the movie by Bob Ewell. Which felt like a horror film. It did feel like a horror film. And I understand why they're doing it. But for the audience who aren't children, the center of that film, the core of that film is the courthouse. Yes. And because they tell everything in the movie from the perspective of the kids, even the music from the perspective of the kids, it seems like it lessens the courtroom part and it it's trying to elevate the sort of like fluff that you don't need in the movie yeah. to be like really important. Yeah. There's a part of me at the end of this movie where I genuinely wished that it was just a movie about Atticus Finch. I completely agree. I, like, I think that a movie about Atticus and Tom Robinson that focused on their relationship and would would possibly have been much more compelling. Or even if this same story had been told, but just from the perspective of Atticus, yeah. he can still teach his kids every single lesson he teaches in this movie. I don't think that you need this much of the kids in the movie. Right. But if you were right, if you're writing a screenplay based off this book, I don't see how you get away from this. Like yeah. that is a very strong choice to move very far away from the book. Sure. And into a different realm. I get that. So I can see why they stuck with this. And like I said, I think that there's many phenomenal parts that you get from the focus on the children. The only reason we struggle with the focus on the children is because the focus on the courtroom and the adult world was so good and well done. Yeah. That it just felt like two different movies. It really did. And yet, in spite of that, in spite of the problems we have with the script, I still think there are some good performances. You know, apart from Atticus, Tom Robinson, the guy that played Tom Robinson, 
is that might be my favorite performance in the movie because he only really gets that one scene. And it's tragic. Oh, my gosh. Watching him break down on the stand. Uh, And I thought that the girl that played Mayella Yule, the one who's accusing him of rape, I thought her performance was great. She has to get into hysterics. Yes. And she sells it. Yeah, she sells that role perfectly of she is struggling with the fact that she had feelings for a black man, that she tried to kiss a black man and, and seduce him, and her father beat her within an inch of her life. And now she's in a courtroom defending her father, right. in essence. Right. She's not just accusing him. She's defending her father. And she sells that role so well. Yeah. And in the character of Mayella, I I get what I'm looking for in the script. Because I think there are some really good, subtle things they do in the script. You know, they Atticus asks Mayella, did you ask Tom Robinson to come inside the fence? And she said, yes. And he said, did you ever ask him to come inside the fence any other time? Yeah. And she kind of just says, I might have. And you know. learn everything you need to know about the character of this young woman. And the way she says that line. Yeah. And not just audibly says it. The way she physically portrays that right. line. Ugh. And then at the very end of her testimony, she has this outburst at the, the men on the jury. Right. And she kind of says, you know, if you high class men can't convict this person, then you're all just a bunch of yellow, whatever. And... It, it's such a key into her character's psyche because she doesn't go at them for not believing her story. She doesn't go at them from the perspective of being a woman. She goes at them from the position of class. Right. She's a poor, poor white woman. And she goes at these men and the way she chooses to insult them is by saying, oh, you think you're so high class. With your mighty airs. Exactly. these. And I thought that those touches, and those are things that are brought over from Harper Lee's novel. Yeah. That's where this script really shines, is right. when they allow the dialogue to give you insight into the characters. But that's not always happening here. Right. Did we like the children's performances? You know, I go back and forth on it. I think that what they ask Scout to do is a lot more than you can really ask like an eight-year-old kid to do. Yeah. I think she's pretty good. Yeah. I would agree with that. Not the best child performance I've ever seen, but pretty good. Yeah. I think that Jem is pretty good. What is the best child performance you've ever seen? You know what? The best child performance I've ever seen might be Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense. I was literally just thinking the same thing. He had a control of, of acting that you just don't see in kids. I Literally, I was like, I hope he says Haley Joel Osment. It, I mean, it's a great role. Yeah. And compared to him, both of these kids are just not great. No. I There's also this feel of... Have you seen, like, older movies like that, like Where the Red Fern Grows? Sure. And, like, Old Yeller? Like, I don't, this movie had a strong sense of those movies to me. Yeah. Because of the music, the music is very similar, the focus on children and their innocence, it, it had that feel to me. And so that's why, for me, I almost didn't mind the child actors not being quite as polished yeah. as we would look for in a modern child actor. Because to me... I don't know. There's something so beautiful about their undignified acting that they don't have a lot of training or teaching or talent in acting. They genuinely just come across as kids who are, you know, doing the Egyptian, walking home from school and, you know, throwing rocks at the old Boo Radley house. I mean, and I get that, but it's not naturalistic enough to be natural and it's not well acted enough to be good acting. Like just, it, it's if it stuck was, in the middle, you know, we've we've brought up the tree of life a couple times since we've watched it with each other. Greatest and or worst movie of all time. 
But the kids in that movie, even though they're trained actors, you get the sense that Terrence Malick was just letting them be kids and yeah. filming them. Yeah. And I don't get that sense here. You know, they're definitely reciting lines. Yeah. Yeah, that that is probably true. I really liked Jem, though. Although he's a little turd. Like, <laughs> throughout the movie, he constantly defies his father's authority. Yeah. He constantly refuses to do what he's asked to do. But at the same time, he's, like, stopping Scout from fighting. And yep. he tries to, you know, he's in the moment of, in his heroic moment when they are attacked by Mr. Yule. Is it Bob Yule? Yeah. He, his very first thought, Scout, run away. Yeah. Like, he wants to protect his sister. Well, and again, I hate, I am not the guy that likes to bring up, in the book, this happened. Because the book shouldn't matter to the movie, in my opinion. Like, you shouldn't have to read a book to enjoy a movie. If a movie's good, it should stand up on its own merits when you're translating from book to screen. You don't get that with Jem. And I think in the book, it's more spelled out that Jem kind of resents his father after his mom dies. But, like, in the movie, you know that he's sad that his mom died, but you don't really understand that he's taking it out on Atticus as a result. Yeah, you see it a tiny bit when he's when he's upset that he's not getting a rifle and his dad's, you know, won't teach him how to shoot a gun. Right. But that's probably the only, like, conflict that you really see between Atticus and Jet. Absolutely. So, one more thing that I want to point out, and I want to get your thoughts on it. The narration in the movie, the voiceover... What, you know, a lot of people think that using voiceover is like a cop out as a screenwriter. I don't really think the narration is bad in this movie. Yeah. But the voice of the narrator really bothered me. I thought really? she was awful. Yeah. And maybe they were trying to portray her as like a 90 year old woman. She was so like this. breathy and Maycomb was a tired old Maycomb. town. <laughs> Real tired old town. Yeah. I didn't I didn't like her portrayal at all. Yeah, I didn't enjoy it either. But it it didn't strike me while I was watching it. But now that you're saying it, it's it's kind of like when you're drinking a whiskey and you start to think about a certain note, you start to <laughs> right. Now, I had, I hadn't necessarily thought about it, but like you are right, she kind of was just crappy. You're not going to be able to watch this movie anymore without seeing that. I refuse to ever watch it again. Oh, all right. One out of ten. Well, if we're not going to watch the movie anymore, Brad, you then I might think as it well might be time for us to, to try some whiskey. some whiskey. Yeah. Today we're looking at Tullamore Dew. A nice Irish whiskey. Why don't we go across the Atlantic and see what we can find over there? Will it be a Tullamore do or Tullamore don't? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So today we are trying Tullamore do. Now, Tullamore do is an Irish whiskey, and most of you have probably heard of it. It is the second most popular Irish whiskey in the world, right behind Jameson. Good old Jameson. So you've Probably heard of Tullamore Dew. I'm sure a lot of you have tried it. Irish whiskey is a really interesting sort of uh, brand of whiskey. Um, you know, as Scotch whiskey became more and more popular historically, Irish whiskey, they, it's not as peated. It's not as heavy and smoky as Scotch generally is. And in order to distinguish themselves on the market from Scotch whiskey, Irish whiskey added the E into the word whiskey. That's how we got the extra letter. Literally, just to distinguish themselves as different types of whiskey, they took the Scottish, you know, Scotch whiskey, W-H-I-S-K-Y, and added an E-Y instead. That's really interesting. And yeah. the world followed. I feel like any other whiskey. Except for yet. Canada, because they take the E out of, Canadian uh, whiskey takes they? the E out as well. I don't drink Canadian whiskey. We tried one once, yeah. right? Canadian Club 12? Yeah. That was pretty good, It actually. wasn't bad. Yeah. But today, we're returning to Ireland to try some Tullamore Dew. 
And Brad, what are you picking up on the nose of this one? It's got a nice, smooth sweetness to it. It smells like a scotch. That's the thing is like, there's a very specific, like fruity note that I get on scotch. I know yeah. a lot of people don't. You get, obviously you get butterscotch. Right. On scotch. But to me, this smells like scotch without the smoke. Yes, exactly. So I wonder if maybe there is some sort of peat to it. There's only one real uh, area of Ireland that likes to add peat to their uh, whiskey. Okay. But I don't I don't know if this is one of them. Yeah. Is, is it the peat that adds the smoke? I think so. So then... Again, we're Scotch novices, so... Uh, yes, 100%. 100% novices. So on the nose, I really like it. It smells light. It's, uh, it's so not much a, different than the bourbons that we've had. Yeah, it's not an overpowering alcohol smell. Very pleasant aroma. Yeah. I would probably, on the nose, I'd probably give this one at least a six. Eight. Brad's saying eight. All right, why don't we take a sip? Let's try this taste. That does taste like scotch. I don't taste anything. Really? I don't taste much. Oh, I, I feel like I noticed some butterscotch caramel flavors. I'm going to try another sip. Yeah, I just don't get a lot of flavor out of this, man. Huh, dude, that is really interesting to me. I feel like I have some butterscotch, uh, some caramely type flavors. Mm -hmm. I and I would almost say there is a slight, and when I say slight, I mean very slight peatiness to it. Interesting. I like. I genuinely can tell that this is from the British Isles mm -hmm. and not from America. Now, I just added a couple drops of water to mine in hopes of opening it up, and it does get much sweeter. I do notice some of those butterscotch notes. On on first try, though, it really just tasted like an alcohol burn with a little bit of what you expect in a scotch, like mm -hmm. you said. Um, but I don't get very much taste on this at all. I'm yeah. going gonna, gonna to give it a four on taste. I am going to give it a seven. Seven on taste. I, I really enjoy this taste. It's smooth. Yeah. It's sweet. It It's not sweet in the same way that a bourbon is sweet. Uh-huh. For me, it's the smoothness and the clarity. It it tastes... I This is slightly punny, but it's Tolmore Dew, D-E-W, mm -hmm. like, you know, morning dew. It kind of tastes like fresh water. Oh, like, yeah. To me. It, it has sure. a freshness to it that I really enjoy. It really is crisp and clean. And on that nose, like I said, I get a lot of floral and yeah. I get a lot of fruit. Yeah. It's a very bright... I mean, I don't know how else to describe it. It's a bright-tasting yeah, whiskey. Yes. Crisp, bright. Yeah, yeah. On the finish, uh, like I said, I don't get a lot of taste, but where it packs its punch is on the finish. Yeah. It's not overpowering. It's just enough spice to let you know that it's there. Yeah. And even now, uh, you know, 20 to 30 seconds after I finished my last sip, it's lingering in a healthy way. Mm -hmm. It's sitting on my palate. It's letting me know that it was there. And we had a great time together and it'll call me tomorrow. <laughs> you know, it's nice. It's good. <laughs> I enjoyed my time with it. Yeah. I will say that uh, it is a very thin mouthfeel. Yeah. You know oh. what I mean? Would you say that it does not it's have much viscosity to it? Not very viscous? It's not very viscous. <laughs> it, it's a very thin whiskey. Yeah. Um, if that's your thing, that's fine. But it does hold up in the finish better than I thought it would for being so thin. I would give it a seven on the finish. Eight. Eight on the finish. Overall balance, Brad, where are you at? I'm going to give it a nine. 
I wow. I really enjoyed This might be it, your highest rated through. whiskey of all time, Brad. I was going to say this I think will be my highest rated whiskey. I really enjoyed this. It's smooth, it's sweet, it's And the thing that I like about it better than most of the bourbons I've ever had yeah. is the crisp brightness that it offers. Sure. It's something so it's not different heavy. than you get from any American whiskeys beyond bourbon. Yeah. From, you know, your Tennessee whiskeys, whatever else you're having. This this is unique, and I, I really like the flavor a lot. For sure. Irish whiskey was, at one point, the most popular spirit in the world. And I can understand why. This is a very sippable, very easy-to-drink spirit. I just don't think that it has enough to it Yeah, that I can give it a high score. Yeah. Um, I prefer something a little thicker, a little more viscous, as you would say. Uh, <laughs> But Not as I would say, Bob. As, as, as you I would, would say. say. <laughs> so, Brad, I'm coming out to, is this a 32 for you? 32. 32 out of 40. Making it into the 30s. That's it's your first one, I think, to ever make it into the 30s. Uh, I think James E. Pepper might have hit 30, but it might have been 29. I don't remember. This might be our biggest split ever. I'm at a 23. Ooh. You're at a 32. This Look, this is an above average whiskey, especially for the price, and especially for something as mass produced as this. Yes. I like it a lot. Yeah. I'm getting tons of floral. I did have to add a couple drops of water to really open it up. Yeah. And I don't like to have to do that. Right. Like if I have to add something to it to make it better, that tells me that there's something deficient in it. Or is there something deficient in you? Well, that's, we already know that. (laughs) All right. So there you have it. I've got a 23. Brad has a 32, which will put us out at an average of 27 and a half out of 40. Still making this one of our better reviewed whiskeys. I would say if somebody came to me and said, I rated this a 27 out of 40, I would be acceptable with that. Sure. 23 out of 40. I think it's above average. I I don't, I don't think I'd put this up in the upper echelon of what we drank, but I think you're below average. Wow. As a human being, not as a whiskey reviewer. Oh, great. Thank you. Yeah. (laughs) Just as a human being. Just as a human being. Well, Brad, on that note, what do you say we get back into talking about to kill a mockingbird? So that was Tullamore Dew. Tullamore definitely do. We didn't say it in the whiskey review pod part, but would you recommend? I would recommend. Yeah. I, again, I think it's an above average, especially you probably paid what, like 12, 15 bucks for that pint that you got? Uh, for a pint, it was twelve ninety nine. Yeah. That's totally worth it. Yeah. If you want an Irish whiskey, go for it, man. I think for a fifth, it was like 21 or 22. I want to get a tiebreaker from across the room. We've got producer Eric, our, our audio engineer. What kind of a score would you give that out of 40? Nothing about it is super exciting. Yeah. But that's fine. Um, I'd say out of 40, 32. 30. Holy. Yeah. That's right. 32. That's right. Man, I gave it like a 23 or something. I gave it like sixes across the board almost. And that's the thing. It's like if someone gave me this, I'd be like, it's good. Yeah. And that's the biggest thing that Bob said, honestly, is the fact that it's mass produced. And it's still this good. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you're no help to us, producer Eric, but Ah, (laughs) I think you're a wonderful help. Moving back into To Kill a Mockingbird. All right, let's let's talk about the release of this movie because the movie came out in 1962, which is, in my opinion, one of the best years for film in the history of movies. Really? You've got movies like To Kill a Mockingbird that came out this year. You've got uh, Lawrence of Arabia, which wins Uh, Best Picture. Right. One of the best movies of all time. 
You've got movies like, uh, even if you want to go see a musical, you've got The Music Man. You've got The Manchurian Candidate, one of the best suspense movies of all time. Hmm. Up and down the board, 62 is one of the best years for film that I've ever seen. I feel like if To Kill a Mockingbird had come out in another year. It, it would have won Best Picture. I think it would have. Yeah. Um, just because of the material, the way it was handled. But I think back to a couple weeks ago when we talked about Green Book. Right. And the movie Green Book is set in 1962. Yeah. And it's a film about racism. Yeah. In the, the Deep South. This movie is being released to the general public at the same time that Green Book is happening. Yeah. And it's kind of crazy. You know, we talked about some of our critiques of Green Book and how it's a little bit outdated in the way it portrays race. And then I think about how explosive this movie must have been to release into that environment. You know, we look at it now and it seems kind of tame, but flashback 57 years. Well, and my curiosity is if you were able to get into the geographical data of how well the movie did, did it do well in the north, the northeast, the west, and not the south? Sure. Or did did it do well across the board? I have a feeling, and, and I don't know for sure, but I have a feeling that there were probably people protesting it in certain parts of the country at yeah. this time. I mean, you're talking about really, really deep segregation happening. Right. Well, and and the movie's not ashamed. It's not afraid to call out the blatant racism that it saw. Right. And and it very clearly, you know, Gregory Peck, when he's delivering his final speech, he very clearly calls them out and says, like, before God and man do the right thing. Yeah. And the wrong thing is to to bring back a, a verdict of guilty. Absolutely. And and, and he, he set it up as this essence of you are either a good person or not. And that's he's not just saying that to the jury. He's saying that to the audience that is watching the movie. Absolutely. And so there, there is this sense that the movie is calling you out as a as a viewer saying, you know, and obviously they set you up to believe that he's innocent. Right. But if you're getting angry about the way Atticus is defending him. Yeah. He's calling you out. One of the things I love about the book and the movie is that it really does call you, even with our problems with it being told from a childlike perspective, it calls you to see things from the perspective of a child. Which is to say, this is not that difficult. Right. You know what I mean? At the very beginning of the movie, Scout uh, encounters Mr. Cunningham, who is paying an entailment to Atticus because he couldn't afford the legal services that Atticus had provided. And And an entailment is basically a debt. Exactly. Yeah. And he's paying him in like bags of nuts that he grew on his farm. And, you know, she asks Atticus, why is he paying you in nuts? And he says, well, because he's poor. But she kind of calls out Mr. Cunningham about like, hey, how's it going? How's the entailment? And he's like so ashamed. He doesn't want to see Atticus. He just wants to drop the nuts off and run. And you get this idea that Scout does not understand societal norms. She doesn't understand what it means to be ashamed yet. She's a kid. Yeah. But at the same time, you're being called to see things through Scout's eyes when it comes to that courtroom scene, which is that it's clear Tom Robinson is not guilty. Yeah. That the most likely scenario is that Mayella was beat up by her dad because she was attracted to a black man. And everything about this case is circumstantial evidence. Like nothing can really stick. And yet you see the adults trying to make something more complicated than it needs to be. Right. You have testified that he choked you and he beat you. 
You didn't say that he sneaked up behind you, knocked you out cold, but that you turned around, and there he was. Do you want to tell us what really happened? I got something to say. And then I ain't gonna say no more. He took advantage of me. And if you find fancy gentlemen ain't gonna do nothing about it, then you're just a bunch of lousy, yellow, stinking cowards. The, the whole bunch of you. And your fancy ass don't come to nothing. Your mammon and your Miss May Ellen, it don't come to nothing, Mr. Finch. And that's what, and that's where I don't know if this was the intent, but just the simple fact that the movie was made in black and white, yeah, I think is a clear reflection of the simplistic way that a lot of children see the world, and they see the world in black and white. Sure, something is right or wrong. Mom and Dad says this is okay for me to do, or I'm not allowed to do it. And the and this movie does come across that way, as in. Tom Robinson either did it or he didn't. Oh, he didn't do it? Okay, well, that's it. That's black and white. Why Absolutely. are we, you know, waffling about it? Yeah, for sure. So we had talked a little bit before about how after the Tom Robinson saga, we returned to this Boo Radley saga. And I understand what they're trying to do in comparing those characters. But again, because of the way it's set up, it just didn't have the emotional payoff for me. The interesting thing for me was... To me, the scene in which Bob Yule is attacking Jem and Scout, to me, was a parallel of what happened with Tom and uh, Mayella mm. Yule. Yeah. You know what I mean? That there was an attack, that there was violence. And I, I, to me, it felt like in that situation, we got to see Atticus do for his children what Bob should have done for his child. Sure. And so that I thought that was a really interesting parallel. But once again, the Boo Radley, why was Boo Radley there? Like obviously he saved the children's yeah. lives, but he doesn't have a parallel to the to the other attack. There was nobody to help Mayella right. when she was attacked by her father. Right. So I Yeah, I just I felt like they really didn't handle the Boo Radley stuff very well. Yeah. Which bothers me because, you know, the guy that played Boo Radley was Robert Duvall, one of right. our finest actors in, in his first big major movie appearance. The fact that we've gone this long into the podcast without mentioning his name. It's because he has no dialogue. Well, and he doesn't come he into doesn't, the last five minutes of the movie. He's still one of the best actors oh, of the last sure. 50, 60 years. Definitely. I'm glad that we have him in the movie. Yes. I wish they'd done something more with him. Yeah. Even in the book, he has a couple lines of dialogue. Yeah. So, you know... The centerpiece of this movie is that courtroom drama. Right. And that, as you said earlier, is one of the best films within a film right. ever made. Right. And everything around it kind of sags a little bit for yeah. me. And I didn't notice it as much until this watch. Yeah. I feel like as we sit down with some of these movies, I try to be the most objective, discerning viewer I can. It changes the way you watch a movie. It really does. Because you're you're holding them up against every other movie on this list. And you're asking, like, does this hold up? Yeah. Does this deserve to be called a classic? Is this in the upper echelon of American films or, or right. world cinema? And the thing is, I 
Sometimes I wonder if the score that I give the movie is tied to, is this a classic film? Yeah. Because I don't know what score I'm going to give this film yet. I'm still thinking through that. But it might not be as high as something that I gave, like, Some Like It Hot. And I would say Some Like It Hot is a classic film. Yeah. But not a capital C classic film the way that To Kill a Mockingbird is. So I, I don't know. I struggle with that. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat with you. I had had this movie on my IMDb scored at a 10 for the longest time. Yeah. And one negative viewing of it does not change my opinion of it because I've seen it, you know, like I said, five, six, 10 times, whatever it's been. Yeah. And I've loved it every single time until this time. Yeah. But it was enough for me to knock it down to a nine. Wow. I think I'm sticking at nine for now. Um, it's a great movie. It's a classic movie. It's still one I would obviously recommend. But... There's just something deficient about it that I, I can't quite put into words yet. I can't quite put my finger on. Yeah. I think in the hands of a better director like a Sidney Lumet, yeah. we would have gotten a, a little bit better of a movie, even right. for what we got. Right. So if you had to give it a score, Brad. I was going to give it an eight and a half. Yeah. But then I realized that that means I would put it at the same score as Goodfellas. <laughs> and it's clearly a better <laughs> film than Goodfellas. So I'm going to give it a nine. So we're both at a nine. Yeah. And, and I say that slightly facetiously. I genuinely give this a nine. Yeah. It, it's a phenomenal movie. Even the parts that we have critiqued, I still liked them. Yeah. I, they still worked well in their own way. Sure. Put together, the movie struggled. But on its own, those little parts were endearing and fun. And, and you really got to see the innocence and lightheartedness of the children through those parts. It just didn't necessarily work as a fully put together movie. Absolutely. So yeah, I genuinely would put this at a nine. Uh, phenomenal movie. Would you recommend Bob? I would recommend any any day of the week. So that's been our take on To Kill a Mockingbird. But what do you think about it? Please let us know. If you're on Instagram, hit us up at Film Whiskey with an E. If you're on Twitter, same tag at Film Whiskey with an E. Hit us up on Facebook or give us a phone call. We would love to hear your voice. Our phone number is... Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that's 216-800-5923. I'm just amazed with this movie. I, not having seen it before, I was so happy with it. Just really a great movie all around. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. We'll see you next time.